Vidalia Shenlin, um, who is a public opinion expert and political consultant with 20 years of experience, an academic and writer. Dalia conducts extensive research and policy analysis on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, democracy, human and civil rights, minorities, religion, and state for a range of political and civil society figures in Israel. She's a policy fellow at the Century Foundation and co-host of the Tel Aviv Review podcast. Um, as you know, because you signed up, but as a reminder, our topic today is can an Israeli-Palestinian confederation work? And um, I encourage you, if you wanna read more about that topic, that if you actually just type in our scholar's name today into Google and type in confederation, you will find a number of scholarly and public article and, and uh, popular articles uh, that you can, you can read and share with others as well. So with that, Dr. Dr. Shenlin, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, first of all, for inviting me and thank you to everybody for uh, attending. I've also, just a note, I've sent over some of those articles, the most relevant ones to AJ earlier. So if you have any trouble finding them on Google, you can, you can uh, access them. Um, I have lots to say on this topic. Obviously, the main question is, can uh, an Israeli-Palestinian confederation work? But to do that, I think we have to get into some background um, and understand why we're even having this conversation. Um, given the, you know, the, the very logical time limit, which is good because I can talk forever, I will probably keep my introductory portion, what I call the diagnosis, a little bit shorter than I had originally planned so that I can get into the uh, kind of explanation and some detail about what this idea actually entails. Um, but what I do think it's important to walk through where we are now, starting with the question of why we're having this conversation. And the reason I ask that, rhetorically, of course, is because you know, many people in Israel today will argue that there, there, there is really no need for any final status conflict resolution, and not just in Israel. Many people, uh, I think, who are interested in this region, who are Israel supporters, um, simply say, what's the point? We can't get there. And it's understandable. I, I mean, I do understand this background because there haven't been any serious negotiations in recent years. The last bilateral negotiation was in 2013 and 14 under John Kerry, but they were not expected to uh, succeed and there wasn't much political will. And in fact, they didn't. Going back before that, we're talking about 2008, uh, the Annapolis process, that's a long time ago. Um, and so many people say, you know, uh, the Israeli leadership is nationalist and right-wing and quite openly opposed to the idea of a two-state solution. The Palestinian leadership is weak, divided and barely legitimate, first of all, in the eyes of its own people. And so why bother when it can't possibly happen now? We don't really need it. No, neither side wants to make the necessary compromises. We might as well just go for conflict management. Uh, I would like to you know, preface everything by, by, by opposing that view for many reasons, but the two most prominent reasons I think uh, that are on my mind right now are, you know, first of all, Israel does not have a final border. And that might sound technical, right? Israel does not have a final Eastern border, but I think that it's, it's deeper. It's like the fact that Israel does not have a constitution. Lacking a border is lacking an end to a conflict in a profound way. It is lacking a piece of identity. It is lacking any finality in who Israel really is and what kind of country it wants to be. It leads the, the country to constantly want to expand territorially, um, and keeps it mired in an ethno-nationalist identity conflict. The other major reason is should, you know, should be obvious, but is not always obvious. And that's that we are in an unresolved conflict and unresolved conflicts are never static. They are not stable. There is no status quo. Um, a few weeks ago, I wrote an article about Cyprus, very peaceful, unresolved conflict. You hear Israeli policymakers say, why can't we just be like Cyprus? No need to resolve this. Well. Cyprus just had an election, uh, and the result of that election in the north is going to be a much bigger opening for Turkey to intervene and you know, completely change the status of the island. And that's a very dangerous situation on the local level and on the global level. level. Uh, and beyond the political threat, all you have to do is look at the escalating conflict in the Caucasus region right now, Armenia and Azerbaijan, where thousands of people have died because of an unresolved conflict. Those are both conflicts that were unresolved for decades. You probably haven't thought about them in a long time, but they flare up because that's what happens when there is no final status agreement. Um, so that's my sort of 
starting point when it comes to why we need to be looking for a solution to the conflict, even if the idea of a solution or peace sounds a little bit remote, given where we are right now. Now, the other question that you might logically ask is why are we having a why are we opening up a question to an answer uh, which has already been answered? You know, how do we reach Israeli-Palestinian peace and a final status resolution? Well, anybody who's involved in this will tell you it's through a two-state solution, um, and we already know that. Well, I want to you know uh, call this part of the talk the diagnosis, and the diagnosis is what's wrong with the two-state solution, what has gone wrong with attempts to reach it over the years, uh, so that you understand why so many of us have begun searching over the years, in recent years, for different approaches to conflict resolution. If I had to pinpoint the three things that went wrong with the traditional idea of two separate independent states living side by side, I would say the process of getting there, the negotiations, the content of the agreement itself, could never be agreed on, and therefore, there was never any implementation. So before, during, and after of reaching an agreement, the two-state solution failed at all of those levels. And at a certain point, I think you have to ask, if you cannot reach a destination, maybe there's a problem with the destination. You know, we can play the negotiation blame game for a long time, but when we open up the real problems within the negotiations, we find that there was no agreement on the core issues of the conflict. Now, this becomes a little bit jargony. So core issues is what we talk about when we think about what are the ingredients that you know, are really keeping this conflict going. Uh, and there are many, but the ones that we focus on in policy circles are the question of borders. Where would a border be between the two people uh, or territories? What to do about Israeli settlements in the West Bank? What to do about Palestinian refugees? And Jerusalem, how should Jerusalem be you know, how should, what should it do? Should it serve as the capital of one state, two states, divided or not divided? Of course, there are additional major issues, things like how to manage security, how to manage natural resources. These are not marginal, but the core, most difficult emotional and policy-related issues are those ones. And what I want to do in the rest of the talk, really, is walk through each one and explain where the two-state solution was unable to reach agreement, and how I've come to see the confederation approach as a better approach. Um, okay, again, I, I could continue with the political diagnosis, which gets a little bit into the immediate politics of this, but I think it suffice to say that the last administration, American administration, the Trump administration, um, interestingly gave a lot of attention to this issue, but primarily by putting its thumb on the scales in Israel's interest, alienating the Palestinians, meaning there has been no meaningful process. Again, the Israeli government, the current governing you know, leader and party, and the coalition is a different story, but the Likud party, which really dominates, has been very open about rejecting a two-state solution um, and many of its erstwhile coalition partners. And if there was any question about what direction Netanyahu would like to take in, recent, in, in the coming months, I would just look at Israeli headlines from today, because it seems like his opening uh, welcoming statement to President-elect Biden was to announce uh, plans for building new housing in a Jerusalem neighborhood uh, that is technically East Jerusalem, but it's in the south of Jerusalem. But it's you know, um, a neighborhood that would basically cut off West Bank Palestinians from Jerusalem Palestinian neighborhoods. In other words, cutting off the contiguity of a Palestinian state. This is Again, it may sound technical. Maybe some of you know the neighborhood. It's called Givatamatos. It surrounds the Palestinian town in Jerusalem called Beit Safafa. But the point is that it's another symbolic statement to the American administration or anybody else that this current Israeli government is not interested in the traditional two-state solution. That's where we are. Um, and it's, you know, given the normalization of the idea of annexation, um, how far the Trump administration took the two sides from any sort of, um, you know, effective negotiation process, or uh, you know, and much further away from the idea from the idea of a two-state solution of, of, along you know the old parameters. It's very hard to imagine going back, you know. And in the past, I used to say the two-state solution looked reasonable, but there are there's a lack of political will. Um, all you have to do is sort of unblock. Uh, the wall and you can get there. But now I think the situation has fundamentally changed. 
on again political levels uh, and many other levels and you know on the ground which we'll talk about afterwards i think it's now a different story if you were to open or you know break down the wall uh, of political will you would see something quite different on the other side that makes it hard to go back to the idea of a traditional two-state solution so um what is the basis for the new thinking about a two-state confederation the base the premise starts with the idea i would say two but you know two fundamental facts uh realities about this region one is that there are two national communities here and again you i don't know if this i don't know you as most of you in the audience i don't know if you question this but many people do question this and so i have to say this there are two national identities here neither are going away um, the Palestinian national identity is alive and well, and it is permanent. Um, and the fact that the fact is that both of them live on a tiny strip of land, which that size of the land, the size of the land is not going to change. And the inability to separate completely physically and geographically is not going to change unless you talk about, you know, mass expulsion uh, of one side or the other. And I hope nobody's talking about that. And, you know, if that's your starting point, then the primary question is what is the framework? What is the political framework that can contain both realities? That you have people living in one chunk of land, a very small, inseparable chunk of land, who have two distinct political communities, political and national communities. Um, both sides need national self-determination. They need to have independence, but they are also interdependent and many of their resources including land space uh, and natural resources are interdependent and you know in order to get into the details of all the core issues i want to start by introducing what this word confederation means and why i think it is a better response to those two uh you know basic realities of what's, what's going on on the ground here the word confederation is open to a lot of misinterpretation. Uh, let me also uh, try to encourage anybody who uses this in the future to avoid the very closely related interchangeable term confederacy only because of the unfortunate connotations. Um, I don't think it really denotes anything different politically, but even political scientists get confused. I think that the best way to describe a confederation is two separate independent states that voluntarily form an association of limited joint powers by which they share certain limited aspects of their sovereignty willingly. Um, and those, you know, traditionally when you have a confederation structure, we're usually talking about coordination on security and defense issues, primarily external security, as well as economic issues. But there's no hard law that says, here's what a confederation can and can't do. That's the basic principle. And I do wanna distinguish it from a federation, right? And the main difference is that a federation has a shared government, a shared legislature, maybe a shared presidency. Um, each one takes a slightly different form, but a federation is much closer to what we might consider one country. And you know examples of federations, of course, I don't need to tell you, places like Germany and of course the US. Um, uh, and the way to think about it, I think, is as a hybrid. It's a hybrid between what we talk about as the two-state solution, or the one state solution. The goal is of course to kind of pull the best elements of both two states and one state to try to kind of stitch together a constitutional framework that is, you know, supportive of, of the two sides, you know, self-determination and self-fulfillment. And I think that also there's a, a sense that, you know, looking at it like this, you can take elements of the old two state solution and elements of a one state idea and put them together is cutting through the binary, the idea that you're either in the two-state camp or you're in the one-state camp. And if you do, you're diametrically opposed. And then since neither one is just right, then there is no solution. I reject that approach. I think that there's, you know, there's just no logical reason why we can't think of a governing structure that is appropriate, even if it means drawing on both. Now, does that sound like a naive uh, or, you know, kind of too pithy an idea? I don't think so. Uh, because if you look around, when you start looking around for other hybrid government structures, they're all over the place. I already mentioned Germany and the US as federations. But there are also, but I mean, there are many countries that seek the right balance of a shared, uh, you know, a shared something, whether it's a shared government or a shared, uh, shared institutions, along with 
decentralized entities. Um, and I think one good example of that is the European Union, right? So we'll talk about comparative examples maybe at the end, but the European Union is a good model to keep in mind because each country still has its national identity, separate national identities, borders, but they have a more inclusive uh, territory that allows people to move and uh, live and um, they feel part of it. They have access to it, they can work, they don't need visas. It's a, it's a much, it's a, kind of a loose confederation in that sense. On a historic level, it's worth pointing out that both Switzerland and Canada began life as we know it as confederations, Switzerland centuries ago and Canada in the mid 19th century, which is interesting in itself because these were both countries of very significantly different and conflicted uh, ethno-national groups with different linguistic, national and religious identities. And they have both over the years become more and more integrated with themselves moving more towards a one state uh, idea. But more than that, I would say both those countries have become practically symbols of peace uh, when you think about their national identities. And so I don't think the idea of a confederation is inherently naive uh, just because it seems like, you know, you can choose a best of. These, these are uh, known frameworks, even though we don't use the term very often. Okay, uh, the basic question is simply how much to be together, how much to be separate. So let's walk through those core issues that I talked about before. And I wanna, again, in, in you know, sort of brief amount of time, try to explain what I see as the problems with the old two-state solution with relation to each of the core issues and where the Confederation offers what I view as a more um, realistic and preferable approach. And I do call, I call it an approach because I don't wanna present this like in some messianic way and say, we have all the answers, but it's a different, way of thinking about it. Um, so again, I started out with making the point that a confederation envisions two separate states. And by that, I mean two separate legislatures. I don't expect Israelis to live under, or the country of Israel to live under Palestinian law. I don't expect Palestine to live under Israeli law. And I don't expect Palestinians and Palestinian Israeli legislators to see eye to eye on their systems of law. I don't think that's what self-determination in this situation really means, at least not for now. Uh, they don't have a shared executive, um, but they could have specific shared institutions for dealing with some of those limited areas that I talked about before. Uh, and I will walk through them, but the basic one will be shared institutions to deal with security. Some of those are, have, have been in place for decades uh, up until recently. Um, shared economic councils and possibly a shared court of human rights for dealing with very specific situations uh, to, deal with, to, to deal with residents. Who might be living on the other side. But in the, uh, in the sense that this is two states with two different governments, in that sense, it's not such a radical break from the two-state solution. The first core issue that I talked about is borders, okay? Uh, the confederation, or sorry, let's start with the two-state plan. The two-state solution, the way the border is envisioned under negotiations up until now, over the years, is if you imagine a bow and arrow and just stretch the bow as far back as you can go, as far east as you can go. That's how the border has been envisioned. In other words, if we start with the Green Line, Israeli settlements keep expanding eastward, and every time the negotiations or the idea of a two-state solution stretches the boundary or the border, the future border, around Israeli settlements. That naturally eats into the West Bank. Um, Gaza is a little bit separate because uh, I think in, in over the last decade, Israeli policymakers have frankly just tried to leave it out, which I don't accept either, but that's been part of the conversation. At least there, the border is stable. But in the West Bank, the border keeps stretching eastward to wrap itself around settlements. The problem is that settlements aren't finished and they aren't limited to any one block close to Israel. If you look at a map of settlements, big ones and small ones, they are spread out throughout the West Bank. There is a separation wall, it's not finished. And so there is no real line for a border now. There only is, the only thing there is is a presumed border that has been developed about 20 years ago and, and fleshed out in greater detail by the Geneva Initiative in the early 2000s. And that border cuts very deeply inside the West Bank. Uh, depending on whose map you're looking at, that border would cut off parts of the West Bank from other parts of the West Bank, meaning Palestinian state wouldn't have 
any viable contiguity, land contiguity. So they couldn't really function as a normal society, either socially or economically, because they would be cut off in various ways by Israeli settlements and the infrastructure for those settlements. And that border can keep moving eastward. And in fact, the Trump plan, I would say, took that to a greater extreme by simply assuming that Israel would annex a, a large portion of the West Bank and leave Palestinians with small isolated bubbles that would make it impossible to have anything like a viable state. But that, to my mind, is the natural extension of the approach of the two-state solution, in which the future border wraps itself as far as settlements can go. The Israeli incentive is never to get to a resolution so they can keep building more settlements so that the border can keep stretching. Doesn't leave much by way of an actual Palestinian state. The confederation approach, and this is an approach I should back up for one second and say that it's not me you know, dreaming up all this stuff in my head. There are many people, some of them are on this call, Rabbi Schlesinger is with us, but also the Land for All movement who've been thinking about these things, IPCRI before that, another NGO, civil society group. So this is the composite you know, of lots of people's thinking. Uh, the idea of the Confederation proposes a border alongside or close to the 1967 line that we call the Green Line, which was of course the ceasefire or the armistice lines from 1948, 1949, uh, with minor adjustments if the two sides agree on them. Uh, but it rejects this idea that you keep stretching the border further and further eastward, cutting into any future Palestinian state and leaving only isolated bubbles. The goal is Palestinian territorial contiguity so that there can be genuine independence, um, genuine self-determination. Um, it is a symbolic rejection of the Trump plan, but we thought of this long before the Trump plan. Uh, why would Israel even consider accepting this kind of border when it doesn't have to? Um, well, the reason is that the border is reconceptualized, not as a hard border, not as an international uh, partition, okay? a closed border, if you will, but as a porous border, okay? Uh, we sometimes call it an open border. I think it's a little bit misleading. The idea is not that there is no border. Okay? There is a border. The reconceptualization of that border is that it is intended to facilitate people crossing. It is intended to welcome people crossing. Think of the American-Canadian border, or again, European countries and their borders. This does not ignore security concerns. They, it simply treats people as individuals. It is a border that's there to help people cross it and stop individuals who represent a security threat, which is how, in fact, most international borders work. But it's not how the borders, such as they are, work today. The way the Israeli um, you know, patrols along, they're way inside the West Bank, they're not on the Green Line, but the way it works today is that there's a collective uh, restriction on all Palestinians. In fact, most of them can't enter Israel at all. Um, but it's a collective system of permits that mean basically nobody can come into Israel unless they have exceptions. Um, and the exceptions are a very, very bureaucratic process full of permits. It's a collective approach to Palestinians controlled by Israel. This is a conceptualization of a border that is intended for people to cross that treats both sides equally and treats individuals for what they are, either you know, well-meaning residents and citizens or individual security threats. Um, and so there's no compromise on security, but there is uh, a conceptualization that the entire land is open for all people, not to, you know, not a free for all, but that both sides accept and welcome the idea that the other side wants to be there either to visit in other ways to live. Well, I'm gonna talk about that next. Um, and that both sides have a, a natural, national, historic, religious connection to all parts of the land, which is the reality. There's no denying that reality. Both sides have a connection to the other side, the, the territory that would be the state of the other side. So the hope is that in re rethinking the border and making it something that is you know, designed to be crossed quite freely by both sides, it will be less charged as to where you place that border. The other reason why it would be less charged and less sensitive is because of the idea that citizenship is disconnected from residency and people can live as permanent residents on the other side. Not everybody, not a free for all, not, um, you know, in a kind of, not like a one state solution, but specifically for the purpose of addressing the next two core issues. 
The next core issue is settlers. Okay, what happens with settlers and settlements? Uh, and I want to bring you back to the two-state solution, uh, which the main condition, the primary condition, practically the heart of the old, uh, the traditional two-state solution, is evacuating settlements. We saw it in Gaza. We had 8,000 families uprooted. It was very difficult time for Israel. In the current uh, plans, depending on where exactly those borders would go, which we have, which as I said, for the old two-state solution are not clear and not final, but given the anticipated route of the traditional two-state solution under the you know, Camp David talks in 2000 and uh, Geneva Accords, we're looking at settlements that would be left beyond that border. Uh, and the number of people who live there is, you know, ranges anywhere from 120 to 170,000 people, depends on who you ask. Uh, people who still very much support the old two-state solution say, no, it's only 100,000. But I think if you really, if I've sat with, you know, the people who are the demographers of settlements and, you know, know the border routes better than anybody, and I've looked at the different villages, towns, and settlements that would be outside the route, and we're talking at least, to my mind, at least 150,000, probably 170,000 people. Okay. Uh, I don't see how that's politically possible, but, you know, I think there's the problem with the old two-state solution there is that it essentially hinges everything on uprooting people from their homes. Now, you know, the argument is that they chose to live in areas that are uh, where Israel's violating international law, where they know they were, you know, uh, undertaking a political provocation. However, we have to face the reality that at this point in the settlements, we have people who have been born there, whose parents may have been born there. Um, I think personally demonizing them is a deflection of the fact that this has been state policy to build settlements. And I can plug my new mini podcast just about settlements in which the first episode is with uh, a historian of settlements, Gershom Gorenberg, who really details, uh, outlines in very great detail that the state under the labor government uh, absolutely laid the groundwork for settlements and has supported it at some of the most critical times. So I don't think it helps to pin all of the re blame, responsibility, and punishment on the settlers who live there. And given uh, what would happen if you did that, you know, you create a new, gen new trauma, a new generation of grievances, possibly cycles of revenge. And it's getting very hard to justify it politically, but even legally and even morally. And I say this as somebody who is generally on the far left in Israeli politics, but I have come to see the settlement issue differently. Um, what the two-state confederation proposes instead is to recognize uh, what I, everything I just said and give settlers a choice. And the choice is, you know, you are, if you are connected with this land, if it is more important to you to remain connected to the land because of religious reasons or personal reasons, the choice is to remain as a law-abiding citizen of a Palestinian state. Okay, now that's controversial and difficult and we can talk about all the problems with it, but in, if negotiations were based on goodwill, it could be that some of the big blocks would be annexed to Israel anyway. There's no reason to reject some of the more, you know, some of the uh, approaches to the old two-state solution, if, the, if there's an agreement on that, land swaps or whatever. Um, but the idea is that you are not forcing people, uh, you are not forcibly uprooting them, you're allowing them to live as equal protected residents um, and permanent residents, but they wouldn't have voting rights on the national level in Palestine. They would continue to be Israeli citizens, of course, and vote in Israel's national elections. So they couldn't change the political character of Palestine if they are not law-abiding, if they are provocateurs, if they are violent, they will lose their rights to live as a permanent resident, um, which I think makes sense because they're not citizens and they need to follow the law. And we know there's a political problem. Um, and for anybody who's, well, okay, I'll leave another, another point for slightly later. The point about disconnecting residency from citizenship is a mechanism that helps settlers find a solution uh, without forcing them out. But coincidentally, the same mechanism, the same principle, can be used to address the third major core issue of Palestinian refugees. And this is, I'm sure you all know, one of the most sensitive issues in the entire conflict. Um, I can tell you that in all of my survey research over the years, the, the return of refugees to Israel is the thing that Israelis reject more than anything else, even the division of Jerusalem, because it's so sensitive. And part of the reason is that Israelis view it as the end of the Jewish state, refugees flood Israel and vote uh, a Jewish government out of existence. 
And for Palestinians, it is the heart and the backbone of their national identity, going back to their homes in 48. Now, this nobody has managed to square this circle, but lots of ideas have been worked out in the old two-state solution negotiations, and there's no reason to throw those out as well. The most, uh, the clearest ideas for how to address the Palestinian refugee problem in previous negotiations involved a menu of options, going back to a Palestinian state, resettlement and full citizenship in a third country, um, compensation on some level, and where the two sides always got stuck was whether any should be allowed back into Israel, and if so, how many. The Palestinians always wanted more, the Israelis always wanted less, the Israelis wouldn't recognize the Palestinian right of return, the Palestinians wanted a recognition. It's all because of the defensiveness and the fear that a flood, that recognizing it opens the floodgates. Um, my approach on refugees is informed by a lot of comparative work, but the Confederation idea says, you know, you can allow people to live in Israel without fearing that they will demographically overtake Jews and vote out the Jewish government. Why? Because they won't have national voting rights in Israel. They would be Palestinian citizens to vote in their uh, in, in national elections. They would vote in Palestine. But if they want residency, permanent residency, just like the settlers and who would stay under Palestinian uh, authority, they can apply for residency and, and get residency. Again, none of this is intended to be naive. They would have to pass, you know, security vetting. Uh, the numbers and the pace of return would have to be agreed on. But the idea is to remove both the reality and the fear of a situation in which a flood of Palestinian refugees could overtake Jewish society politically because they would only vote in national elections in Palestine. The last core issue uh, that we see differently is the question of Jerusalem. Um, and again, this is among Together with refugees, it's sort of a competition for which one is the biggest obstacle or has been the biggest obstacle in the past in negotiations. The two-state solution is predicated on the idea of partitioning Jerusalem, the division, the redivision of Jerusalem with a hard international border. And, you know, I'm not exaggerating this. I mean, I've spoken with many of the most committed supporters of a two-state solution, some of the smartest, in my opinion, people that I greatly respect who have said to me, there's only one way to end this, and that is through a hard international border, and it will run right down Route 1 in the middle of Jerusalem, according to the old uh, armistice lines. Um, I think that if you look at the reality of Jerusalem today, and I have to say that this, on a personal level, getting to know Jerusalem better was one of the main reasons why I began to change my mind about the two-state solution. The two communities in, uh, in Jerusalem, Palestinians and Israeli, Israeli Jews and Israeli uh, Palestinian citizens are so heavily interdependent in Jerusalem that to try to uproot them, to try to separate them, frankly, I think it's impossible. Physically, I think it's impossible. Just to give you an example, if you were to put up a wall and try to separate the traffic infrastructure in the French Hill area, we're talking by my you know, uneducated engineering assessment about 15 years of construction. Uh, during that time, the entire city would be impenetrable and unreachable. But also economically, uh, about half of the East Jerusalem workforce, the Palestinians in East Jerusalem, either work in Jerusalem, the west side of Jerusalem, or in Israel, or in Jewish Israeli owned businesses in the east. And therefore, you're looking at immediately about half of the workforce that would probably be out of a job. In other words, the first people to suffer will be the people who are already um, among the poorest um, and have the least certain status in the entire region. Um, beyond the economics of this, I don't think there's, I mean, not only do I not think, I've been doing survey research for 21 years. You can never get more than 20% of Jews who, are, who, are, who, who would support the hard division of Jerusalem in recent years, over the last decade at least. And the same mirror image among Palestinians. Nobody wants to divide Jerusalem. So that's a problem with the old two-state solution. The confederation approach would rethink it as an open shared city. Uh, there is no, nothing physically impossible about adding a building that serves as the capital of a Palestinian state in East Jerusalem. There are no laws of physics that say that can't be done. The city can remain open. Um, on a practical policy level, this means instead of a border dividing it, you would have to have some sort of a ring around it 
so that you can maintain security over people coming from both sides and maintain some sort of control over the populations who enter Jerusalem if they're each to have access to the other side. But it's a shared city open to all. That's a much greater symbol of what Jerusalem really is, home to all the great, you know, the three, three monotheistic religions. Um, and it's more manageable on an urban level. The urban space is where people have the opportunity to meet who are not, the kind of people who are not participating in people-to-people -people dialogue groups. They meet in an urban level because they have to, and they have to get along. And that's what's happened in Jerusalem. It's happening in small and sometimes uncanny ways uh, in Jerusalem today. To stop that process would be to rip up something organic uh, and, and re-instill conflict, I think. Um, those are the core issues. Now, let me just talk through briefly a couple of items related to security and then economy, and then I will summarize, and then we can go into questions. In terms of security, you know, usually the first question I get is, how can this ever work? Um, the two sides need to be separated because they are a security threat to one another. Well, the fact is, the two sides have been coordinating security ever since Oslo. It's, the security coordination was one of the only aspects of Oslo that was actually functioning. Was it functioning happily? No. Uh, and I was able to say that it was functioning up until just a few months ago, but the Trump administration's policies had so alienated Palestinians that finally the Palestinians said, we're ending security cooperation. And so it's not completely ended, but it, now it's in a very different phase than it was uh, a few months ago. But up until recently, that was actually one of the only things that actually worked from Oslo. The problem was Palestinians hated security coordination because it meant that they are essentially helping an occupying power to continue occupying them. So they hate security coordination, they consider it collaboration. But the idea is that the infrastructure is there. If you change the fundamental political context, uh, to a situation in which Palestinians have genuine independence and self-determination, then the cooperation simply becomes a matter of their sovereign decision about the best way to manage security, uh, knowing that, they will, that there will be the same kind of interactions there are today with the same kind of people, but coming from a situation of independence and equality and their own decision to, to, to uh, coordinate security in that situation. It shouldn't be such a huge transformation. External security is more complicated. There's no question that there will be a political kind of, it, it's very much more politically meaningful who controls the external borders, but there's no reason they can't coordinate that together. There are already plans in place uh, that have been developed by, you know, security, uh, retired security people for managing the Jordan Valley uh, in ways that help shift the actual responsibility onto Israelis together with Palestinians. They were developed for a two-state solution. There's no reason they can't be implemented for a confederation as well. And in terms of economic policy, I mean, I'm not an economist and I wanna you know, make that clear, but I can tell you one thing. When you have a tiny uh, you know, piece of land um, and it's hermetically sealed by a much more powerful state next to it and actually surrounded as the Palestinian state would be under the old vision, terms of where things are on the ground now or under the Trump plan. Small isolated bubbles of land completely surrounded by Israeli sovereign territory. They are landlocked in the West Bank without access to seaports. They wouldn't have control over their electromagnetic space or uh, entry or exit, kind of the way they are now, imports, exports. They do not have an economic horizon in a situation like that, especially if there's even a, a harder partition uh, from Israel, which limits their economic and job opportunities. In that kind of situation, you're talking about economic collapse. I don't know how fast, but fast. Economic collapse is not the only uh, feature uh, in ethnic conflict, but it certainly is an exacerbating factor for continued conflict. So I think that um, there's no question that one of the better things to come out of the situation we're in now, where the two sides still have some sort of contact, is some limited economic opportunities. And it's exactly where the two societies are cooperating today for economic gain, such as Israeli high-tech companies that outsource programming to young people in Gaza. It's that kind of, you know, it's that kind of economic um, mutual need that provides opportunity and those should be encouraged as you know within the foundation of this kind of arrangement rather than an exception 
that needs to cross huge layers of, of uh, administrative bureaucracy if you had a two-state solution. And I think that it creates needs-based interaction rather than depending just on goodwill. Joint institutions, like I said before, security, economy, the one that I would say is a little more uh, complex, but probably necessary, and maybe even a good thing, is the Joint Court of Human Rights. This is something that the Land for All movement uh, talks about as well, and the documents that have been prepared by IPCRI before that, because you will have people living as permanent residents on the other side. So you need to have some sort of shared, uh, you know, basic standards for human rights, so that if such a resident, uh, an Israeli living on the Palestinian side or a Palestinian living on the Israeli side, has a grievance, um, of some sort, there can be at least some basic common standards that can be adjudicated through a common court of human rights. Um, I will have to stop there in terms of the institutional development, but I'm happy to talk about any uh, technical aspect of this. Let me just conclude. I think that, you know, fundamentally, the Confederation approach acknowledges the reality that there are two people living together. Uh, one of my greatest colleagues and academic collaborators, uh, Omar Dajani, a Palestinian-American professor of law, and I, we were writing a paper together and he came up with the name, he calls it Stuck Together. Uh, and it's about Confederation ideas. I like his name, uh, it's pithy, it's fun, but I think it sounds, the only problem is that it sounds a little bit defeatist and I wanna try to turn that around. We are stuck together, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that we need to not only accept that we have separate national identities, cultures, histories, and languages uh, and religions, but celebrate it. It's natural, people are diverse. Um, I think that by providing one another with separate entities for self-determination, we strengthen our own identity. That strengthens our sense of security, lowers the pathological sense of insecurity that both sides grapple with that turn us into permanent victims, which is unhealthy in many ways. Not to say it's irrational. I know where it comes from, but it's time to start chipping away at it. But acknowledging our interdependence is a way of acknowledging you know, very human capacity to care about people beyond the artificial uh, determination of just our self. And why do I say it's artificial? Of course, we have a Jewish people and we have a Palestinian people, but there is an artificial aspect to it because within the Jewish people and within the Palestinian people, we have just as much internal discord. Um, it's the same as, you know, if a secular Jew cares about a Haredi Jew, or a lefty can care about a settler. We need to learn how to do those things. And by the same logic, learning how to be Israelis and Palestinians together in one space will help us remember in general how to think outside of our own very, very um, atomized communities. And I think we're seeing the danger of that sort of atomization at a time like this. So yeah, uh, there is a naivete here on some level but I think it's a realistic naivete. It express, I, I think this approach expresses a fundamental faith in humanity. I don't think it's exaggerated. And I think for me, the bottom line is we can do better than where we are now. We can't be perfect, but I know we can do better. Okay, Dr. Shenlin, thank you so much. Fascinating stuff. Um, we wanna open it up for questions. I think because each question will warrant, the, I mean, the depth of the topic will warrant such a long answer. I'd like to take maybe a few questions together and then you can respond as you wish. Does that work for you? Yes, I will write them down so okay, I can keep great. my answers and, um, and friends, some of you come with great expertise. You've been thinking about this for decades. Feel free to ask your hard-hitting questions. Some of you feel like uh, you're very distant from these issues, um, but you have curiosity and, and, that's, and don't worry about silly questions. Um, it, it's all really helpful to foster the dialogue. So, uh, you know, I think the size of the group, often we have been doing questions by chat, but let's actually invite folks to unmute themselves, those who would like to articulate a question. Um, if you have agreements or disagreements, you can put those in the chat, but if you have questions, we'd love to hear you now. You, you, you spoke often about national election. Yeah. Uh, in the Confederation, you know, the. Israelis living in the Palestinian territories would not vote in national elections. I understand that, but what about local elections, mayors and city councils and so forth? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's question one. Should I take another uh, one or two? Howard. Someone else? Just wanted to ask, I mean, I think this is a great idea. Um, how much independence could Palestinians realistically 
expect to have given the huge dominance of Israeli Jews economically, socially, and so forth, um, and how much has already been done by the settlement movement, the occupation, and so forth. If one were to declare a confederation today, to what extent would the Palestinians really have some kind of autonomous uh, ability to rule themselves? Mm -hmm. And I have a question also, um, you know, having family, including grandkids there before the pandemic, we've been going about twice a year in one of the settlement blocks. And what we pick up and we hear is at the local level, you see the communities kind of interacting. We, we hear stories about in Tel Aviv, middle class um, apartment buildings that will have both, both um, uh, Arab as well as Israeli middle class and different levels, that there seems to be some more accommodation, accommodation going on at the local level, small scale. And, and that perhaps there's, you think there's a potential for this to be the sort of a cooperation that's going to work up as opposed to working down. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, sorry. Sorry. Another there. one. There's one more question in the chat over there. Then, if yeah, you want right. to tackle sure. those. Uh, yes. So that's from AJ. Um, how likely is the Biden administration going to? How likely is it? Is it the Biden administration will pursue new approaches to peace? What steps do you think they are going to do to undo the policies of the Trump administration? Okay. Um, Okay, I'm just jotting all these down. I'll try to get you, to all of them. you think the Abrahamic agreements that are now developing will, will impact your theory of the Confederation? Okay. Okay, I have five great questions, and I'm going to get through them all really fast, uh, especially because the first one um, about lo local elections is a very easy one. I just skipped it for time. Absolutely. There's no reason why... Uh, people who are permanent residents somewhere shouldn't vote in local elections. Um, it, it ties people more closely to the local you know, council or district. It gives people common cause with neighbors in neighboring villages or, or around, the, around the corner. Um, and it's absolutely you know, normal and democratic practice, including when there is a residency situation like in the EU. So that's an easy answer. Um, how much independence can Palestinians realistically have given the social and economic dominance of Israeli Jews if it was declared today? Uh, you made it easier for me by adding that if it was declared today, because it won't be declared today and it can't be declared today for the political reasons I said before. Let me clarify, the main reason I think we need to talk about this now is to start laying the groundwork so that when there are eventual negotiations and eventual competent leaders or willing leaders, there will be something that can be implemented realistically. And if it were to happen today, I don't think any of this would work, uh, partly for the reasons you state, but I think that this is a great segue into another thing that I like to discuss, which is what can be done now. Uh, we shouldn't be sitting here waiting you know, for some uh, great left-wing political leader to arise in Israel or some very competent Palestinian leader to arise in Palestine. Um, one of the things that I think everybody should be thinking about is how to uh, generate greater economic parity between the two societies, because I think that will be a fundamental condition of any future agreement. So whichever side you end up on, if I completely fail to convince you and you're either two staters or one staters after this, everybody can agree that greater economic capacity from uh, a stronger economic life for the Palestinians and greater parity between the two sides will you know, support um, and create better conditions for the implementation of any agreement, particularly one that continues to foster uh, the natural economic interdependence they have today. And so how does that yes, happen? Sir. Well, mm -hmm. sorry. Done it now. Am I trying to jump so in? It's gonna be done at noon. Oh, sorry, I heard somebody. Um, so I think that that's a legitimate question for now, but I think the goal should be at present, even a right-wing Israeli government, um, could completely sign on to the, 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 the um, goal of lifting up the Palestinian economy. And at times they have. I mean, Netanyahu himself talked about economic peace. We can be cynical uh, or realistic and say he didn't actually mean the peace part of it, but it doesn't matter. He did identify and throw right-wing support, I mean, his political credibility behind the idea of strengthening the Palestinian economy. And if this is the political reality, we should be seizing on that as well. Israel, of course, still controls Palestinian economic life through the Paris, uh, the Paris Protocol that was, you know, the attachment to the Oslo Accords. 
And I think the problem is really how that's implemented on the ground. Of course, I think that the protocol itself is really old um, and probably should be revised, but Israel controls pretty much everything that goes in and out of, Pal of, of the West Bank and Gaza. And so it's kind of up to Israel whether they want to facilitate economic growth on the Palestinian side, um, even at this point. And I think that this ties into the question about the Abraham, uh, the Abrahamic Accords. You know, again, from a, the perspective of people who support going back to a peace process, it looks very bad to have these um, wonderful burgeoning relations with the Middle East that will sideline or, or sideline the Palestinians or make uh, peace superfluous because Israel doesn't need it. They have their cake, so to speak, uh, by normalizing with the Middle East. But I think that there's another way to look at it, which is that these agreements with you know, sort of rising stars in the Arab Middle East can be supportive, can facilitate um, the conditions for a peace process, especially if those Gulf states are trying to prove that they actually do care about Palestinians, what kinds of things could they do to show it? Well, they could invest in the Palestinian economy. They could come to arrangements with Israel about how to get money there, um, how to convince investors to invest there. And I think that we've, we're already seeing this happen, ironically, under a right-wing government through Qatar, the enfant terrible of the Gulf, which is funneling money to Gaza for the prime minister's kind of management plan, which again, as you know, I don't think any conflict can be managed for that long. But this model is already in place with Qatar. And now we have actual formal relations with the Gulf countries. There's no reason why we can't also leverage them as a bridge to support economic development so that in the future, any uh, agreement, but specifically this one, I think, will be supported, will be better supported by a greater economic, a more supportive economic environment. And that goes to the Biden administration. You know, I don't know exactly what the Biden administration will do, but I imagine there are many complexities. You know, the Biden administration is first of all facing, you know, the country, I don't need to tell you, that's dealing with the worst situation of COVID, you know, in some ways worse than any other country, uh, a, a recalcitrant president who doesn't want to uh, have a transition. And, um, the economic crisis. And so I don't know if this is going to be first on his list, but if it is, I can imagine great complexities there as well. Um, Biden has already signaled that he wants to try to revive the Iran deal, the JCPOA. I am a little concerned that to try to get Israel to at least go along with that, he will bargain away certain aspects with relation to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or at least not push Israel too much. I could be wrong about that. Um, but if he wanted to try to roll back Trump's policies, there are a number of things he can do. And I think the first thing would be to signal to Palestinians that he still considers them relevant, equal, and respectable actors in this whole thing by you know, reopening the PLO representative office in Washington, reopening the US consulate uh, in Jerusalem, um, you know, continue re restoring American funding to Palestinian agencies, specifically UNRWA, even though I have criticism of UNRWA too, but it is, it is, you know, essentially the biggest welfare organization for Palestinian society, which is in many areas on the verge of collapse. Um, and a lot of symbolic stuff that doesn't just involve, you know, embassies and money and bringing the Palestinians back in, showing them that they're going to, you know, take a different approach to this, I think would go a long way towards identifying the Palestinian partner that Israelis have been you know, complaining that they don't have for so long. So that's um, going very quickly through all of the questions. Okay, good, so, excellent. Well, Any well, more? You got through a lot Any of Any more? Let's take one more, uh, one or two more questions if we have it. Yeah, Rav Hanan. Permanent residency, let's say in the settlements, also Palestinian refugees within Israel, is permanent residency passed on by heredity? Hmm. That's a good. That's a good question. I really. I have to say that I have not really thought about the hereditary aspect of it. Um, but I think that ultimately, you know, there's two ways of looking at it. One is to say, you know, if you are born somewhere, nobody has the right to uproot you, and so you have to have some sort of status. And you know, if the general understanding is that you can't, you know, that the, that the sides do want to preserve their citizenship status, uh, you know, in a way that's engineered somewhat to to uh, strengthen their national identity, you could argue that they, or, or they could agree in the agreements that they would pass on permanent residency. Um, that reflects an approach to conflict resolution uh, through what, there's no nice way to say it. It's a sort of demographic engineering. 
And I don't love it, that concept, but you know, because I work very significantly in Cyprus as well, and I know how they have envisioned their solutions, I think that sometimes, you know, they also have envisioned the kind of really like percentage wise, how, what percentage of people are allowed to be from the other community, you know, in the entities that would be Greek or Turkish Cypriot. And I realize that it doesn't sound nice, but there sometimes isn't much of a way around that. Um, the other way of looking at it would be that the two sides agree that they are moving towards greater, you know, a greater um, in integration rather than separation. This is a continuum. As I note, as I pointed out with relation to historic examples like Canada and Switzerland, it's dynamic over time. What, what, what happens if in a century from now, the two sides decide they prefer to be one country? Um, even if they go a long way towards constitutional preservation of their different identities, which is exactly what you have in Canada. Um, I'm not gonna take a position on that, but if they decide to take that route, they would very well decide that everybody living in the territory becomes a full citizen, if that's the direction they should take. And I know that sounds pretty crazy, but I think that if you'd asked you know, Francophone and Anglophone Canadians in the mid 19th century, if they would end up where they are now, I'm not sure if they would have predicted it, but moreover, their arguments about how they could possibly live in one country together went on through the 1980s. So these are problems that don't go away, but they can be channeled into a political argument rather than a violent military conflict. Thank you. Amazing, okay. Is, is there one last quick question? Let's see if we have it. Don't be shy. Don't be shy, really. Criticism is so helpful because it really makes me challenge what I, what I don't know. Do we need to have, I mean, you could say um, governance on both sides, but is Hamas and, and the more radical sides or, or dictatorial sides of PLO, do, do they have to kind of monitor? I mean, how do we, uh, you, you hear stories that, that many of the Palestinians would favor better relationships, but there's a fear from, yeah. from the top. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that reminds me that I didn't really get to the question about how local people interact today. I mean, again, I'm not going to try to whitewash the problem of the leadership on both sides. The Israeli side is that there's the problem is that there's no political will. And the Palestinian problem is that there is a deeply divided government. And one of the one of the sides of that divide is essentially a military uh, force. Um, and that's Hamas. And they, you know, they have no interest in channeling anything into well, I shouldn't say no interest into channeling their demands through political channels, because in fact, they have been working through a sort of, you know, a crypto uh, diplomatic channel through Qatar and through Israel. So who knows? I mean, sometimes extremist actors do come in from the cold and become political actors. That's happened plenty of times in other conflicts. So, of course, there would have to be some sort of unified leadership with the le general legitimacy of the population in order to reach any kind of agreement. That's not unique to the Confederation. That's one of the reasons I think this is not happening tomorrow and probably shouldn't happen tomorrow. And if I talked about steps that can be taken today, not necessarily by you uh, in this audience, but things that should be happening now, well ahead of any attempt, I talked about economic steps, but I also think there needs to be a major investment in Palestinian democracy building and revival. Um, because without that, it's going to be very hard to do any of this stuff. Who can do that? Well, Palestinians, but it's very hard because their government is borderline authoritarian, not only Hamas, by the way, PA just as much. Um, you know, ex other third, third party countries, European Union, I mean, they have lots of projects that deal with strengthening uh, democratic practice and party, you know, building, party building, electoral integrity. And those are the kinds of things that have to be put into place in order for Palestinians to eventually have a legitimate election process that will lead to a legitimate leader. So yeah, I, I mean, I basically think you're right that that something has to happen that moderates the, the major political leaders. And I do want to talk briefly about the question uh, about how people interact at the local level. It's a very good and very sensitive observation. Um, inside Israel, we do have more levels of integration between Jews and Arabs than in the past, partly because of some slow upward mobility, upward social mobility among uh, the Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel, both in professional and educational levels, and minimal um, residential integration, still very slow. Um, but I think that specifically their prominence in certain professional fields like the medical field and pharmacy and, and medicine at very high levels, that's really gone a long way towards 
kind of, you know, achieving not just exposure to one another, but exposure to one another as equals, or even uh, with, you know, the Palestinian citizens who were traditionally uh, sort of an underclass as, you know, at a higher level. Um, on the level of settlers uh, and Palestinians, I mean, you know, maybe Hanan, you can speak to your experience, but I've spoken with a number of people who live in the West Bank, in different parts of the West Bank, um, including some of the more sensitive regions who say, oh, you know, you lefties don't understand that we get along just fine with the villages <laughs> around us. Now, I, you know, I laugh at that sometimes, but I also <laughs> don't completely laugh it off. I laugh because I think that they have a political motivation for saying that. Their motivation is to say everything's fine as long as we, Israel, are in control. But I don't dismiss the fact there, that there are interactions of mutual interest, economic interest, economic opportunity, exposure. Um, I don't want to be totally cynical about people going to each other's weddings because it is a human interaction. I think that it's only sustainable if it's leading towards interaction as equals. Uh, without that, it will always remain an interaction of conflict. But it's not a bad start to at least be exposed to one another. So I want to, you know, try to look at it from that direction. And I certainly don't think the way to resolve it is through ethnic segregation. Okay, Dr. Shenlin, thank you so much again for this amazing presentation. Very thoughtful. Many of us have never fully, uh, fully or at all uh, explored these, uh, these, these issues. AJ has posted on the side various articles you can learn more about this approach. Um, as always, our, our, our goal at VBM is to provoke new thought and new explorations as we've done today. And we hope you will read some of that to uh, explore this idea. Uh, reminder that on Thursday, we're with Professor Chava Taroj Samuelson to explore environmentalism. And next m Monday, racism and xenophobia with Rabbi Chaim Seidlerfeller. Thank you, uh, Dr. Shinlin, again. Thank you all. For Thank you, Rav Shmuley, for inviting me. This is really great. Great to see everyone. Have a terrific day.